Today, I'm going to ask you a question. Would you all like to know what the meaning of life is? You know, I assume that's part of the reason that you're here, right? (laughs) The meaning of life. Yeah, it's either one or it's 42, depending on which movie you're watching, right? The one was from City Slickers. The 42 was from a uh, real satirical um, science fiction novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that was later turned into a movie. And uh, the, the, a- the question that is asked of a supercomputer that runs a 7.5 million year program is that the answer to the meaning of life and the universe and everything is 42. And it's amazing to me how many people who are fans of this have spent so much time trying to figure out what 42 really means. I mean, they're getting into all this stuff like 42 degrees is the angle at which light has to hit water in order to make a rainbow, and there are 42 dots on a pair of dice, and uh, 42 is this, that, and the other. All this crazy stuff when, you know, I'm thinking probably, you know, the author just pulled it out of the air because he was trying to make a point. And I think the point is something that we need to consider today. For everyone who would like to know what the meaning of life is, the problem is that the answer to such a question in cognitive terms is just as meaningless as 42. How do you answer such a question? And Viktor Frankl said that meaning is the most important thing to a human being. That meaning is what drives us. In case you don't know who Viktor Frankl is, he was a uh, early 20th century uh, German, Jewish psychiatrist, psychologist, and uh, he spent time at Auschwitz. His whole family was killed during World War II. And what he found in the book that he wrote later was that those who survived the Holocaust were those who found meaning even in the suffering, even in the atrocities, and even in the ugliness. And those who didn't or couldn't either didn't survive or didn't recover after the war was over. Now, what he's talking about when he's talking about meaning, it's kind of the meaning that we attach to the events in life. It's meaning that we attach to the circumstances in life. And so it becomes really closely aligned with purpose. Now, purpose and meaning are two different things, but they become kind of intertwined if we're looking subjectively at the meaning that we attach to things. But I think the question that we're really all asking is something different. We're looking for an existential meaning, a meaning that is not relative to us or our needs or our experience, but it just is. What is the meaning to all of this that we call life? How do we even look at that? You know, how do we find an answer? Because if you think about it this way, if you could get an answer to that question, just a, a straight cognitive answer, like the answer to a math problem, what would that really give you? Would that give you happiness? Would it give you peace? You know, the first, the, my favorite part of every movie that I watch, especially those kind of disaster movies that, that build and build, and you know, then you have the big earthquake or the volcano goes off or something. My, first, my favorite part of the movie is the first third. Because that's the part where you're getting all the setup. You know, the mystery is starting to unfold, and it's really intriguing. What's going on here? What's happening? You don't know. Is it aliens? Is it volcanoes? What is it? And you're getting to know the characters, and there's all this stuff going on. And then, later on in the movie, when you get the answer, it's like, oh, geez, you couldn't have thought. You know, there's no payoff there. I love the beginning part. Well, the mystery is still unfolding. It's not so great once all the stuff starts happening. 
The problem is that we keep thinking of life like it's some sort of machine that we can take apart and we can identify all the, the, the pieces and we can do all this and that. Or we think of it as a math problem that needs to be solved. Or we think of it as a task that needs to be performed, that is a beginning and middle and an end, and we've got to figure these things out. You know what I think life is more like? Life is more like a magic trick, I think. Or maybe falling in love which sort of is the same thing. I can't even think about it. Think about that. How much do you enjoy the magic trick once you know how it's done? How much do you still love the person once you know everything there is to know about them? Sometimes too much information is a bad thing. You know, in, those, in the flush of the infatuation, in the flush of dating and getting to know someone where there's all that mystery there, it's intriguing, but after a while, maybe that's kind of just fades away. You've seen behind the curtain. You know how the trick works. And it just doesn't intrigue you anymore. Here's the irony. We're looking for an answer to the meaning of life that if we ever got it, would kill the experience of life. Would make it just not worth living anymore if we really had it all figured out. There's something in us as human beings that craves the mystery, craves the unknowing. And yet at the same time, the mystery and the unknown scares the bejesus out of us. And so we got this push-pull thing. We got this love-hate thing going. But it's this way with everything that we do, with games, with life, with jobs, with dating, with everything. It's the mystery that intrigues us and draws us through. And if something keeps that intrigue, keeps that mystery, keeps just enough unknown going on, we stay engaged. We stay loving it. So why do we keep looking for something that would kill all of that? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of the unknown. See, Jesus is trying to tell us something very specific. He's trying to tell us that meaning is not a thought. Meaning is not even a thing. There's something else going on here. I wanted to read you just a a portion of this chapter in the fifth way as we're going through the the fifth way and the, the concepts there just to see if we can start to narrow down on what it is we're trying to understand here. This is not a book of answers. In terms of life and meaning and spirituality, there is no such thing. The deepest questions in life are not so much answered as experienced, not so much understood as undergone. The most profound truths are not offered directly and succinctly, but like a figure coming out of the mist, are slowly defined by a gradual grasping of an ability to ask more and more incisive questions, each new question leading to another and a step closer to the whole. But this is not a book of questions either, neither questions nor answers. This is a book about the terms of the way between the two an attempt to understand the process by which we experience the truths of life and begin to see them more clearly. It's about Yeshua's Aramaic message, his teaching of the way to truth and life, what he calls entering the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus is trying to tell us that this meaning of life is not a thought or a thing or a concept. It's a person. It's a person. Truth is a person. Life is a person. Look what he says at John 14, 6-7, and your bulletins are up on the screens. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
That's the shot heard around the world, right? We all know that one. But look at the next verse. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus is equating himself to the father. The father is equal to life. Jesus is identified with truth and life. He says, I am the way. He is the way to truth and life. All these things are a person. They're not a thing. And so when we try to approach them, if we try to understand them as a thing, it's just like trying to understand another person with whom you're in relationship with. How do you do that? How does that work? Knowing meaning, the meaning of life, is knowing a person, falling in love with a person who is that life that we seek. When we know the person, I just said though, sometimes the thrill is gone, right? So how does this exactly work? Am I contradicting myself? You might think so, but I'm hopefully going to explain this away. Let me see if I can do this. See, when we are in relationship with another human being, and we get information that starts to cool the, the sense of love and affection and, and the, the, the connection that we have with them, it's because we're looking at that other person through the filter of our needs, superficially. Do they still have the things that we need? Do they still have the things that are going to fill our void to ease the pain that we're feeling? And as soon as we feel that they're not, we start to lose interest. But when we can start to finally graduate just from our needs, from our fears to real love, and we can start to look beneath and we can see that person as they are, not as we need them to be, things change. When do we ever exhaust the possibilities or mysteries of another human being? When does that ever happen? See, when we're really in a love relationship, it's never exhausted because there's always something new if we're willing to see past our own needs, if we're willing to take a look at that, if we can just stop trying to understand and especially stop trying to fix the other person, let them be who they are, celebrate who they are, learn from who they are, and every turned corner gives us another surprise. This is actually learning to love the unfolding of a relationship always seeing more of the beloved. And so this meaning of life that we're trying to understand in an intellectual way really becomes a process of falling in love with life and truth. As a person, life and truth. Think of the person right now that you're most in love with and and yourself doesn't count. (laughs) Who is the person that you're most in love with? Got someone in your mind? Can you describe for me the meaning of that love? How would you put into words the meaning of that love that you feel for this person? If Lenny was here, he'd say it's his dogs. He loves his dogs. You know? Can you put that into words? How do you put that into words? How do you quantify it? How do you break it down into syllables? How do you do that? It's something that can't be reduced to words. It is a living, breathing experience, a moment-by-moment relationship that is unfolding before you. And that unfolding is what keeps you involved and keeps you connected. As modern Westerners, we have to start to learn to look at life the way Jesus looks at life. 
Not the way that we look at life typically from our culture. Life is not a machine. Truth is not a math problem, a task. And it's certainly not a law that we need to follow. These things that we deeply seek are the unfolding of a person, the unfolding of a relationship. And this person is a person who is truth in life, who created life in truth. How else can we know what this life is about until we know the author of that life? So, a better question to ask than what is the meaning of life, perhaps, is how do we participate in the unfolding of this life, our lives? The analogy that I like to use, and I know I've said it in here before, but bear with me, and for those of you who haven't, it's all new, is this idea of of Michelangelo's horse. And it's said that Michelangelo, the famous sculpture, was able to look at a raw block of stone when he was commissioned to do a piece of art. Let's say it's a horse. And he would walk around the stone and he would envision the horse standing inside the heart of the stone as if it were frozen in a block of ice. And he could see every last contour, every last muscle and vein, every detail of it, until that horse standing there was just as real as the block of stone. And when he had it, completely in his mind, completely conceptualized. He said the only thing left to do is remove everything that's not the horse. Simple, right? Just remove everything that's not the horse. See, for us, trying to find this meaning in life, which Jesus called kingdom, what we might call the meaning of life, Jesus called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, And he spent his whole entire ministry trying to get this concept across, trying to get people to understand, how do you enter this kingdom? Well, we enter it like Michelangelo's horse. Because what Jesus was trying to tell us is that kingdom, the all of us, each one of us, who is that kingdom resident, is already standing inside of us, like the horse is standing inside the block of stone. It's already there fully formed. It's what God sees in us when he looks at us. It's why he can love us even in the midst of all of our stuff because he sees that finished product. Now here's where the analogy breaks down. It's not we who actually remove everything that's not the kingdom person inside. Because if we were to do that, we would be focusing on the negative space. And the negative, focusing on the negative, gives power to that. It takes our eyes off of that which we are really about and who we really are. See, this is why mere obedience to law is never going to do it. Because law is focused on what we must not do. Law is focused on what we still haven't done. It's focused on the negative space and not the positive space. It's a necessary thing in the early stages. We've got to fake it till we make it. But this is why Jesus is so strong. What we do is we focus on the positive We focus on the person of truth and life. And we move out following that path. And the natural abrasion along the way wears off everything that is not who we really are. Wears off everything that is not the horse. We let it atrophy. We we get it gone by ignoring it, by focusing only on what is good. Just as Paul says, that's the way through. This is how we participate in this unfolding. It doesn't feel like you're working at it. It doesn't feel like you're following or obeying or that you're even restricted. You're just living your life. But you're living it with this intense focus on this kingdom person standing inside. This person who was identical with Jesus in the way he lived. 
your focus. And so the point is of all of this is that you already know where to look before you begin. And this is so important because we're looking all over the place for meaning. We're looking all over the place for kingdom. We're looking all over the place for somehow this assurance that we're doing the right thing. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is we already know where all these things are. Take a look at Matthew 13, 44 here. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes out and sells all he has and buys that field. What's the main point of that? I heard, I heard one commentator saying, you know, you've got to understand, this isn't like finding a treasure chest in the ground. It's more like finding a gold mine because it can't be moved because otherwise he could just take it with him. And try, we're overthinking this. What's the main point of what Jesus is trying to get across? We already know where the treasure is before we go off and try to sell everything that we have. And what's this selling off of everything that we have? It's letting die all of that stuff that's not kingdom. All that stuff that's hiding who we really are. That's the selling away. That is not just buying and selling. That is moving through life and letting that abrasion take care of its business. Whittle us down. Mold us down. So the only thing left standing is what's pure. But the key is we already know where this is. Take a look. Jesus clarifies. This is actually two verses before. Matthew 5, uh, where are we at? I'm sorry, Luke 17, 20. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And the word that he uses there, entos, in the Greek, is one of those all-purpose prepositions. It means in your midst, it means inside, it means within, it means in the midst of all these different things at the same time. And in the Aramaic, it's even more specific. Like our men means moving dynamically from inside to outside. What Jesus is saying is don't look out there. Don't look in your circumstances. Don't look for prophecy. Don't look for what's coming down the pike. It's right here. It's right now. It's in the midst of your community. It's within you. It's right here. Before we take the first step, we need to know where it is. This is so important for us to see what Jesus is trying to get across here. Let me read you another passage. The first and most difficult obstacle to grasping the shape of our journey is becoming convinced that the location of the treasure is really no mystery at all. Yeshua has told us exactly where it is and then tells us over and over in image and story and parable how to claim it. This is our red X marking the spot, our big clue, like a decoder ring from a cereal box. Yeshua gives us this first piece, the meaning and location of kingdom, through which we can decipher all the rest of the puzzling pieces we'll find along the way. But for our decoders to work, we need to understand that what the first hearers of Yeshua's message would have understood, immersed in the language, culture, and society of their day, stripped of all we imagine from a modern Western viewpoint, thousands of miles and years away, and restored to its original Hebrew-Aramaic roots, Yeshua's way, the fifth way, emerges not as an answer to a question, but an experience of the presence of God in this present moment. This fifth way is not a thought to be contemplated, but an action to be lived. This way is not a creed or a doctrine to believe, but a way and a quality of life to enjoy. Yeshua takes all these concepts and bundles them up and calls them the kingdom of heaven. 
the centerpiece and framework of all his teaching. The way to the kingdom can't be thought through. It can only be lived through, which means we can only find the way once we're on the way, in motion, breaking out with the deepest desire to claim kingdom as God also desires. And making our desire the same as God's desire is the very definition of answered prayer and the shape of the way. So once we know where to look for meaning, look for kingdom, participating in the unfolding now all becomes about identity. Identity. Looking for what is identical in our lives. We're looking for answers and then we find a person. A person who is identical with, the same as truth and life and the way. You know, Jesus is the way. The way is becoming like the Beatitudes. This kingdom person that stands inside of each one of us looks like the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes are Jesus' portrait of what this person is. And remember those qualities. Poor in spirit, which we always misunderstand because it's an Aramaic idiom. It simply means having the attitude of poverty even if you're rich. It's a synonym for gentle, not domineering, not arrogant, seeing everyone as the same and equal. He says, blessed are the merciful. We know what that means. But mercy that is attached to action, not just feeling sympathy for someone or feeling sorry for someone, but actually moved to do something about the feelings that you have. Mournful, not just sad, but someone who has been so connected to a person that you feel keenly the absence for yourself, for another, and the connection that you create when you mourn with someone is the comfort that you seek. These qualities. And then the other side of the coin, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to want it so badly to have such desire that you will leave no stone unturned, to be pure in heart, which means to be undiverted, not to let yourself be dragged left and right as you move down this path, to be a peacemaker, which is more than just breaking up a fight. It's someone who works day in and day out patiently like a farmer, tending crops, working for shalom, this greatest amount of health and happiness and holiness within the community. All of those are what Jesus is. And Jesus is way. And Jesus is truth. And Jesus is life. And Jesus is same as Father. And all of these qualities are one thing. And they are kingdom too. And the meaning of life is attached to these things because how could it be other? Life is mercy. Life is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. How could it be other? Life is a person who created the life that we live and enjoy. And so this key concept starts to come out in all of Jesus' teaching that he's trying to get across from us as he's showing us what kingdom looks like. He's showing us what it takes to get there. And then he shows us the thing that will trip us up the fastest is to get stuck on the law. And it's just written into human DNA. We're always going to get stuck on the law. We're always going to get stuck on legalism. Because the way the world is set up, there is no free lunch. We have to earn everything that we get. And so we think that we have to earn the love and acceptance of the author of life, too. And it doesn't work that way. And Jesus is trying to get in there and rework it. Say, no, it doesn't work that way. 
Don't get stuck on the law. Obeying law is not participating in unfolding. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. We get stuck. Now, the law is a necessary restriction. It's it's a guide. That's what law means in Hebrew, a guide and instruction that we need to get to this liberation of unfolding. But we can't get stuck there. Another analogy that I like is a jello mold. You all know what a jello mold is, right? All right. So you got this thing. Maybe it looks like a fish. And you put the mold together and you pour the liquid jello in and you let it set there long enough and then you can pull the mold away and the jello still looks like the fish. The law is like that. It's a mold into which we can pour our lives and if we stay there long enough, we can pull the law away and our lives will look like the law, like the intent of the law. Our lives will be the fulfillment of the law. But the law is just training wheels on the bike. We get stuck there. And here's the interesting thing about a mold. It's the negative of the positive, right? So the things that jut out are the things that are going to move out the other way and so on and so forth. And so the things that feel like restriction in the law, when you pull the law away, that's your liberation. See how that works? But we have to realize that the law is not the end game. The law is not our goal. In fact, it's something that we want to shed as quickly as possible, like training wheels on the bike that just slow us down after we get our balance. Jesus is telling us this over and over again. Take a look at Matthew 5.20. I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Legalism to the nth degree. They had perfected it. They had created thousands and thousands of letters of code that had to be followed, and they followed it assiduously. They were the lawyers of their day. That's where they derived their power. Jesus, unless you surpass that, the people were probably freaking out. How in the world could I surpass that? We surpass it by moving away from the concept to begin with, taking that quantum leap over to a place where you're no longer obeying. You have become. You are becoming. You're becoming identified with a person who has values that fulfill the code of the law. Pull the mold away. You know? This is the idea that he's trying to get us clear. And Jesus clarifies this. It's a couple of verses before at Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now that starts to sound very legal again, doesn't it? Not one single smallest, you know, the jot and the tittle were the smallest strokes within the Hebrew alphabet that you could possibly make and convey some sort of meaning. None of that's going to pass away. But take a look at the actual Aramaic behind this. Because when we think of pass away, we think of passing out of existence, right? When someone passes away, they leave our existence and they go someplace else. But the word in Aramaic, abar, means something different. It means to cross a boundary. It means to go beyond a limit. So if heaven and earth are abarring, if heaven and earth are crossing a boundary and going beyond a limit, what Jesus is really saying is, until heaven and earth merge, until heaven and earth cross the boundaries of what they are and become one thing, the law is necessary See, the Jews understood 
human beings as living between heaven and earth, between the unity and pure connection of God's realm, and between the individual form and identity that we experience and live here on earth. And so our job as human beings was to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. In other words, to abar, to merge the two, to have them cross their boundaries and become one thing. As long as we are here on earth, living in community as human beings, the law is necessary. It's going to be necessary. But as soon as those two merge and become one, the law is no longer needed. The law is fulfilled. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Look at me. I am way, truth, and life. In here, in here, in me, you see this merging of heaven and earth. You see all things becoming one thing. The law is no longer necessary in me, and the law, law will no longer be necessary in you when you merge the two. See, this saying has two different ways of looking at it. Individual in the micro within each one of us, and then for all of us in the macro. We're looking forward to a day when our society reflects these values and becomes one thing, and the law is no longer necessary. Biblically, we call that period the millennium, when everything is being run by kingdom principles. I mean, can you imagine? But in order for us to get there, what Jesus is saying, it starts here, now. Entas, legaumen, inside, within, in the midst of. In our lives, in each one of our lives, when we merge heaven and earth, when we in our individuality find and identify with and begin to live the oneness and the connection and the unity of God's heaven, the law is no longer necessary for us. We live the law. The law is written on our hearts. The mold is taken away. The training wheels are off the bike and we still move in the same direction because we have become what God is in terms of his desire, in terms of his delight and deepest purpose. We have begun to find what meaning is. This meaning of life is living this life as Jesus lives it, as his Father lives it. This is what he's trying to get across here. It's so basic, but so difficult and fleeting for us today as modern Westerners to get this across. When we exceed the law, as Jesus is talking about here, when we graduate to kingdom, from obedience to kingdom, when we begin to identify with who this author of life and truth really is, then we realize that kingdom is a person too. Kingdom is the presence of Father. And it's the presence of us, connected with Father's presence. And when we have fallen in love with this person, become one with this person, then we are living this kingdom life that Jesus is talking about. If you think about it, Living in kingdom is living life without training wheels. Is that good enough? Living life without having this outside force that needs to be applied in order to keep us going in a given direction. The meaning of life comes when we're no longer trying to figure it out. And we just let it be what it is and we enter into this unfolding. When we're no longer trying to find an answer to a question to solve the problem of life. We let life be the first third of that movie. We let life be the magic trick that just astounds us and keeps us so interesting and keeps all of that wonder alive.
Sometimes we look down on aboriginal cultures because they still look at life magically. But who's really got it together? Who's really got it right? Is there nothing in us that will allow us to look at life that still has that ability to astound us, to bring us into this place? If we can't do that, Jesus says you cannot enter kingdom unless you can come back to the world of the child. How does the child understand life? Of course it's like that. If we can't come back to those places, we can't go. Kingdom is loving the infinite unfolding of our Father in heaven. Letting him unfold. Letting him have his mystery. Letting him be who he is, realizing that we can't figure it out. Learning to love the vulnerability and the dependence of simply unknowing, of not knowing, letting life be. This is the shape of our journey. It's not a math problem. It's not a problem at all. It's just moments to experience and live. This process of kingdom is what Jesus is so trying to get across to us. And as we move along, this natural abrasion wears away all that is not kingdom and reveals who we really are, who God sees us to be. We came from life. We returned to life. But all through that process, God sees the life in us, the part of us that he created in his image. And Jesus tells us this is the only way. It's the only way to father The only way to truth and life is through me, him, his identity, how he lived. As Jesus would say, we need new ears to hear. We modern Westerners who think we have it all figured out with the arrogance of our understanding that's this much compared to everything that is. Jesus would say, new ears. One last passage. The kingdom of heaven is not heaven, not as we think of heaven, the heaven of afterlife. Yeshua's kingdom is the quality of life being lived here now by those who experience God's intimate presence in the moments of their lives. It's the life lived by those who have awakened from their dreams to find their reality infinitely more wonderful. The realization of that reality, knowing God that intimately is the transformation, the rebirth, the entry into kingdom, the smile point between love as decision and love as play. If all this sounds incomprehensible, that's a good start. That's fine, as it should be. The worst place to start is the place from which you think you already have all the answers. For then, what incentive is there to break out into unfamiliar territory? We won't be off searching for buried treasure It's already found, safely tucked away and waiting for us, which is where the joy comes from. Now comes the painful process of chipping away, selling all we have that is not kingdom, the dying to self, the emptying, the unlearning, which is the essence of the inside-out, downside-up, backside-front process of the fifth way, the way that will give us all the resources we need to buy that field. And once the field is ours, the treasure is ours. And once the treasure is ours, questions and answers pale in comparison. Let's pray.
Father, you are life. You are truth. You are meaning and purpose. You are kingdom. You are author and finisher. We could go on and on because everything that is and everything that we are, everything that we can apprehend is you. There's only one thing. It's you. It's you. It's always you. Help us to see past the things that divert us, that distract us, that redefine life as you're trying to define it for us, to show us how we can live and how we can just love this unfolding of all our moments. Help us to love you better by loving life better. And we are tempted to see life as a grind, as something that has to be overcome. And we're tempted to become warriors and put on our armor and fight through life. Help us to move back, to disarm, and to just live the moments as they come. See you in the moments as they come. Father, you are life and breath. Thank you for never withholding anything and guiding us every single moment of our lives. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.